Hi, it's Nick Brown. Welcome to April Atoms. I'll start with a proposition. The proposition is that the overarching role of a medical journal should be challenging dogma in any of its protein forms. For reasons that I can't fully explain, unquestioning adherence to any set of beliefs, clinical or otherwise, whether in the form of tests or perceived wisdom, has always made me rather uncomfortable. As a result of this, one of the pleasures of my job is being able to direct readers to manuscripts which directly challenge such tenets and nurture alternative viewpoints. This month's highly diverse papers have this feature in common and all reward reading. I'm sure you'll enjoy them. We'll start with a complex, elegant study, which is my, also my editor's choice for the month. Oliver and colleagues estimated the excess, potentially avoidable, risk of re-hospitalisation of New Zealand children admitted at least once between 2000 and 2015, attributable to potentially modifiable adverse home living conditions. These included a number of groups, social and environmental conditions, a subset including home environment, overcrowding, and a group at risk of group A streptococcal infection. Adjusted hazards ratio for readmissions ranged from 2.3 to 3.6 for rehospitalization or in death from any cause, risks that perhaps aren't that surprising. What should stimulate thought, though, is the vigour with which the New Zealand government has delivered interventions. Rather than give lip service to this, they've delivered initiatives such as healthy housing, which involves reducing humidity and mould, and warm-up, which involves providing insulation to those families identified and in need. So my thought is, shouldn't any discharge summary include at least an attempt at assessing whether the environment to which a child is returning is at least an adequate one? Shouldn't we all be trying to intervene when it isn't? With this in mind, I'd suggest you read Nina Modi's leading article, The Case for Child Health, which assesses progress made by each of the individual nations in the UK a year after the College of Paediatrics and Child Health reported the state of child health. Though there are some heartening positives, there's also a lot of inertia, a situation for which I feel we all have some accountability. Changing track slightly. I like pragmatic trials which address practical problems. Drooling in children with neurodisability certainly fits that bill. Skin breakdown, damage to clothing, extra washing, the social implications and so on make it a very real issue for those children and their parents. Both hyacinth patches and oral glycopyrrolinium are in widespread use, often concomitantly, and I've often done this myself, but little is known about their relative merits. In order to address this, Parr and colleagues answered the question in an RCT, which children with excess drooling were randomised to one of the two drugs, and relative effectiveness, as measured by a, a previously validated drooling impact scale. Both drugs significantly reduced the drooling impact score, but the rate of treatment cessation or switch of treatment as a result of side effects was higher in the hyacinth arm. In general, the side effects were predictable, anticholinergic ones, but the patches also resulted in a number of unexpected ones, for example, local skin reactions, unsteadiness and hyperactivity. Estimating the inestimable. Most of us are aware that the assessment of degree of dehydration is at best a rough guess, and that the signs upon which the estimates are made, skin turgor, heart rate, fullness of fontanelle, degree of biochemical derangement, are all highly subjective or correlate poorly. In low- and middle-income countries, of course, the evaluation can be compounded by coexistent acute malnutrition when estimating the attributable portion of weight loss to water or tissue. The findings of Falchevka's 
systematic review, therefore, of three common scoring systems, the clinical dehydration scale, the Gorlick and the WHO, should be of great interest. Objectively, none of the indices shone, though the CDS, an additive score, performed better in high-income settings and gave likelihood ratio positives of 3.9 to 11.8 of ruling dehydration in, but was less good at ruling it out, with LR negatives of between 0.55 and 0.7. The gold standard, of course, is the percentage deficit in true, in other words, immediate pre-admission weight, measured with compatible scales which is another source of error, but this is so rarely available that we're left, as often, guessing. The 24-week gestation baby at school leaving age. The original Epicure 1 study of outcomes in extreme prematurity, that is babies born up to 25 weeks of completed gestation, answered many questions about immediately survival and early outcomes. Lindell's further analysis of the surviving members of the cohort, who are now in their early 20s, tells us much more about their cognitive outcomes. Assessments at the ages of between 2 and 3 by Bailey score, 6 and 9 by Kaufman, and 19 by the Wexler showed consistently poorer scores, particularly marked in boys and those with a neonatal brain injury. A most surprise is the stability of the deficit, that early deficits neither narrowed nor broadened. This suggests that cause for optimism for a well-performing, extremely preterm three-year-old is reasonable, but suggests that it should be much more guarded in one who is lagging behind. Though the more recent 2006 Epicure tool will no doubt augment these findings, a strong message from the first cohort, at least, is that plasticity of the development of the brain in the extremely preterm baby is quite limited. And I'll end with a piece that's in this month's Voices. saint Exepuri's much-loved work, The Little Prince, has been poured over by generations of children and their parents, its meaning scrutinised from numerous angles. Lime's paper in this month's Voices offers a further personal interpretation that the eponymous protagonist had Asperger's. They argue that his lack of reciprocation, bewilderment over roles and expressionless faces give our arguments for this hypothesis. This serious course can neither be proved nor disproved and tells us as much about the pleasure that this book has given us as anything else. But in any case, this should not detract from the interest in viewing something familiar through a new lens. Isn't that what all good literature, clinical and otherwise, should be doing? Thanks for listening.